Until my recent conversation with a government land management employee, I didn't realize how quickly and drastically our country's legacy of environmental protection is being taken apart. According to the Brookings Institution, in this last summer alone, the current administration has loosened restrictions on methane emissions from oil wells, undermined the process of determining energy efficiency requirements for appliances, moved to open Alaska's Arctic Wildlife Refuge to oil exploration, and weakened core elements of the Endangered Species Act. And these are just a few of the changes that are part of a much larger systematic attack on environmental protection measures that have taken decades to put into place. While the public might hear about these every now and then, most of the changes are going unnoticed, despite the enormous implications they will have for decades to come. Is it too late to stop the destruction? Stay tuned for a conversation with someone who sees this crisis from inside the system. Welcome to the Earth Keepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind. People who believe that earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life. And for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. My name is Forrest Inslee, and in this episode, we'll be talking to an employee of a federal land management agency who has much to say about the current administration's systematic dismantling of programs and laws that have been developed over the years to preserve and restore the health of the environment. He has agreed to share an insider's view of the relentless attacks being mounted on this matrix of regulations that have taken generations to put into place. However, as is the case with so many government workers who have dared to speak truth, taking part in this interview puts him at risk of retribution. Yet for him, staying silent is not an option. So at his request, we've withheld his name and altered his voice in order to protect his identity. If you look at the cabinet, these are all oil and gas lobbyists, literally. The people that have in the past spoken out against regulation, that have sued in the courts to, re to get regulations reduced, are now the heads of major agencies responsible for dismantling what has been decades of science-based progressive work. And, and that's extremely disheartening. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Why don't you give us a sense then of where you're coming from, what you're doing, where you are, as much as you're comfortable sharing. You know, I've been working for a federal land management agency now for probably 25 years. The bulk of that career has been in the southeastern United States, but I've worked for private consulting. I've worked for state agencies, but always in the capacity of environmental science, environmental review, really, I think, analysis conservation context, I think, trying to, you know, really look at, especially within the federal realm, looking at 
how federal actions, and a federal action is anything that's funded by federal dollars, how federal actions can affect the environment in which we live. So, I mean, it's, I take it as a deeply personal role and it's a super responsibility to, to have that ability to influence, to some degree, how federal policy is enacted on, on public lands. So clearly we need to do some sort of word of explanation about why you feel it's important to, to be able to speak with some anonymity in this conversation. We pride ourselves, I think, in the United States on freedom of speech. Like you always hear people saying that, right? People need to understand we have freedom of speech, but freedom of speech doesn't necessarily convey freedom from repercussion, right? So I can say whatever I want, but that doesn't mean I won't be punished for it later. Mm-hmm. And I feel like right now, I mean, I'm a federal employee. As a federal employee, the chief executor of the federal government right now is a guy by the name of Donald Trump. And so if I were to say something that might seem critical of him or his policies as a federal employee, I have the right to say that freedom of speech, but repercussions come with no matter what you say. And so I'm, especially in the current environment, I think you see a lot of people in positions of science, public in the public sector, federal government people who are concerned because at high, at the highest levels, a lot of those people have been removed. Despite the potential repercussions, you nevertheless feel that it's important to speak truth. Absolutely. It's a balance. There's a really fine line of saying, how far am I willing to go in the form of of a public forum or, or a protest, knowing that at some level, I also have, I have a family, you know, I'm the main provider. I don't really want to lose my job. I have a long-term career. Yeah, I could find employment elsewhere, but I really, I don't want that to happen. So there's a balance. And I think that's, that's the tension that exists right now is I will speak the truth and I find ways to speak the truth in my job, but I also have to use caution, understanding the ramifications of repercussion because they're real. Absolutely. We, we definitely want to hear about some of the things that are concerning you, but we also want to hear about you. And so I'm wondering if we could perhaps back up and talk about your job, maybe about what you love about your job. Why is this a job that actually you value so much? I think from a pretty young age, my family was one that traveled. We lived overseas for a component of my youth. We traveled a lot in other countries throughout my youth. My dad was very much a naturalist. And so I was exposed a lot to the outdoors at a young age. I come from a very science background. I I like facts. I like figures. I like things that that I can understand. The process of science to me, I want, I want to be able to understand how things work and see what the effects are when we do things. And so I'm just one that I think from a fairly early age have recognized that we have finite resources. We live on a planet. So no matter how much as when we were kids, we might have felt like the United States of America was pretty far remote from other parts in the world. But as 
technology has expanded, we're all extremely close. We're one airplane flight away from just about anywhere. And so we are a global community with global responsibility to manage the finite resources that we depend on for our very existence. And so I'm passionate about it in the sense, I love the outdoors. There's vast beauty in in the outdoors and the natural environment. And I think that we as a species, as humanity have a role in sustaining that for future generations. I mean, it sounds pretty cliche. You always hear that, like what, what can we leave for our grandkids, right? More and more, I think there's a lot of people that don't seem to worry about that. They're more interested in how much money can I make today and we'll worry about what happens tomorrow. I've always been one that said, I'd rather be interested in tomorrow and knowing that tomorrow exists than worrying how much money I can make today. Working in the environmental arena, environmental science or conservation, these are not, these are not the sexy, high-paying jobs that, that you see. You know, Most of the people that you will find working in this as a career probably didn't get into it for the money. Let's talk more about that, actually. You talk about your scientific orientation to the work. You talk about the responsibility, the sort of global sense of citizenship, really, that, that motivates your work. And yet you use the word love when you talk about nature and the environment. And I want to get at that a little bit more. I've seen actually some of the photos that you have taken, and I'm always struck by them because to me, they, they indicate a relationship to the natural world that's actually quite deep, that's both aesthetic and personal. And I'm wondering, how would you describe your relationship to, to nature? I love to point out the tiny things. And I think that, you know, we've been conditioned with especially, you know, the age that we live in today of cell phones and computers. A lot of people go outside and they just see green and they see brown and they they just can categorize some general colors. And I love to be able to discern the difference. And I've actually, it's interesting because I'm glad you asked this question because I, I, it reminds me that I, I use this description for folks. There's an amazing book that's a really, really difficult read. I love to read, but and I love to read books that are just engaging that you don't want to put down. And this particular book is called The Flytrap. And it's written by a Swedish author who I'll butcher his name. It's Frederick, I think, Schoberg. It's S-J-O-B-E-R-G, Frederick Schoberg. He writes about his time on a small island where he collected hoverflies, which are these tiny little insects that a lot of people call sweat bees. They're the ones that kind of hover right in front of you. But somewhere in that book, and I picked it up and I put it down. I picked it up and I put it down. I picked it up and I put it down. It's really not about him collecting hoverflies. It's about life. And he gauges his relationship to the environment with the work that he was doing in investigating these tiny insects. But he describes if you were to open a book in a language that you've never seen before, you would see a white page with a bunch of squiggly black characters. And that's it. There's nothing else you can see. And he says that a lot of people consume nature this way. When they first walk outside, they, like I said, they just see this some different colors. They don't really know what they are. As you learn what those different characters are on the page, and you can string them together, it begins to tell a story. 
right? You can read the story now. It's a whole narrative. And so when I go outside and we're just driving down the road and all of a sudden I said, whoa, we got to stop. And my wife's like, what are you talking about? I said, I just saw something. I need to look at it. And she's like, how can you see anything? It's all just a blur of the same colors. But I've learned to identify the characters on the page. And so as you begin to read all of these symbols, the plants, the animals, the fungi, the tiny little soil organisms, the more you can learn, you're building your vocabulary and reading the environment. And so when I go outdoors, every time it's like a new chapter in a book and it's fascinating because you see different relationships. And so I am just driven to learn more and more about our environment and keep on reading. And so, you know, I think people get that analogy when you just say, yeah, if you just opened up a book and saw a bunch of black characters on a page, you don't know what it means. Sadly, a huge portion of our population goes outside and they're illiterate as to what nature is, the story that nature is telling them. As an English major, when I was an undergraduate, I can connect easily to that metaphor and really, I guess, connect to that need, for example, to learn to read poetry. Oftentimes poetry, just on the face of it, doesn't present itself with all the richness and depth that is actually present. It becomes richer. It tells more of a story. It reveals its depths. When you learn the components, when you learn to read, or as you put it, when you learn the language. When you look at nature, when you look at this this text of nature, how might you describe some of the elements of story that you actually discern from that process? Like, what are the stories that you hear, that you see, that you read in nature? What's so fascinating about it is that you can start to, you know, just by going into different new areas, you see old familiar friends, right? If I go to a different country, a lot of those little characters suddenly are different because they're they're not the same ones I'm used to, but there's always some that are familiar or related. And so you start to read that story. But what's most telling, I think, is starting to understand the relationships and understanding when the environment is telling you that it's in healthy and good condition and when it's not. And so that's a lot of, you know, I think in the job that I do, being able to identify areas that have been impacted by our activity, by humans' activity, to the detriment of nature. What characters are we losing? That narrative of reading the landscape tells you the condition of the site that you're looking at. And so I just think it's super important to be able to to recognize trigger points of are we on the healthy end of the spectrum or are we at a tipping point or a trigger point where we're about to descend into the point of no return? You know, we can, we can definitely deplete enough ecosystem components that we start to this, be in this cascading spiral down of breaking down the connections that are so important to sustaining life. Give us an example of one of those places where we may be in some trouble. Across the United States, wetlands are a super important component of the ecosystem in the sense that they, they filter so many contaminants out of water. They slow down flooding. 
And so we've seen like a, a lot of coastal erosion, a lot of, we look at these storms now that just decimate coastal towns that used to have vibrant salt marshes and these wetland ecosystems that were a buffer against rising sea level and strong storms. But we fill those wetlands. We build hotels on those same areas so that we can bring more tourism dollars into an area. And then we wonder why that whole area gets devastated by a storm. It's true across, whether it's a coastal area or all the way up through the mountains, these very small wetland ecosystems have super high importance in maintaining the balance of water flow within our country. They've been uh, attacked by our development, our land development across the United States for a long time. People fill wetlands, they build a parking lot, they, they build the next, the next Walmart, you know, any of these kind of places. But what we're really seeing now as well is a reduction in the Clean Water Act protections. There's been a lot of rollback of environmental policy in the last couple of years which define what we determine to be the waters of the United States. And a lot of these unconnected wetlands are now no longer protected. So you can basically destroy them. You can, you can contaminate them with pollutants or you can fill them. And when that happens, the water's the lifeblood, right? I mean, if you kind of think of the, our country as an organism and, and the water sort of nourishing, we, we need these areas to be functional. And so I think the health of wetlands and being able to identify that is of critical importance. It's just an example of, I think, one that's been disproportionately affected to the negative over the last number of decades. Clearly, this is a problem that people have known about for some time. And you know that policies have been put in place, you know, in theory that there might even be a sort of continual advancement of understanding of the environment that leads to new policies and, and new protective measures put into place. How would you describe the situation right now in terms of the job that that we are doing in order to to actually protect wetlands, for example? I think that, you know, if you you can find the stories of just looking at cities and looking at images from the 1950s and where there was strong pollute, I, I think of air pollution in this situation, but where you can see we've made improvements. I think this country has incrementally, regardless of administration, right? We've gone through different administrations over the years, but we've been on a path of incrementally improving. Like you said, determining, you know, reviewing regulations, what really works, what doesn't work, but always trying to better ourselves. And there's little pushbacks here and there. I mean, politics are politics, but I don't think we've seen in the last three years, we've seen more rollback and elimination of very progressive improvement to the detriment of society. It can take years whether we're doing wetlands protection through the Clean Water Act or through the Clean Air Act, we've put more restrictive emissions on automobiles. Like there's a classic example. 
we've increased over the years, we've, we had been seeing an increase in fuel efficiency, a decrease in emissions, and with goals set by 2026, we'll have, we'll have reduced it even more, right? Every, all of these things, regardless of your background, we all need clean air. We all need clean water to sustain our lives. And yet what we've seen here of late is the reduction of those policies, the rollback of protections under the Clean Water Act, the rollback of emissions policies to the point that what took decades to finally get to where you can look out across a large city and not see that smog that's hanging over it, we can undo that in a day. If we turn around and say, you know what, those emissions weren't important anymore, and we go back to producing vehicles that cough out toxic fumes at a high level, we're going to see that happen quickly. And I was I was doing some reading in, in advance because we were going to do this, this podcast. I went and just wanted to look up a little bit of information. And there's been... In the last three years, it's something like it's over 60 environmental laws have been rolled back. Most all of these are geared at refocus in America on fossil fuel extraction. What we had really kind of said, you know, a lot of this coal and gas and other things, yeah, we still utilize it, but we need to be exploring alternative energy options. And the current administration has undone literally all of that and clearly by their appointments if you look at the cabinet these are all oil and gas lobbyists literally the people that have in the past spoken out against regulation that have sued in the courts to to get regulations reduced are now the heads of major agencies responsible for dismantling what has been decades of science-based progressive work. And, and that's extremely disheartening. In another conversation that we had, you made a comment that has stuck with me in a way that's really been honestly quite disturbing and a little depressing. <laughs> you said to me that some of the changes being made now will take us 10 years to recover from. So changes made in a moment, you know, ultimately have impacts which, try as we might, won't be easy to come back to in terms of, of any positive advance we've made so far. Is that true or is that exaggeration? Or is that really how you're seeing the situation at, at present? It's hard to pick a particular study that could show that. But what we know is if, if we look anecdotally at water quality and air quality, like I said, you can look back at some major cities and literally with the implementation of some of these policies 20, 30 years later, the air quality and the water quality is significantly better. The problem is it takes a long time to clear all those things out of the environment. It doesn't take long to put them in. So one, one thing I found in particular was one of the early targets of the current administration were the regulatory agencies. So the Environmental Protection Agency was one of the first to get an, an, a new appointee, someone that was basically a climate change denier, big 
proponent of oil and gas drilling on public lands. And there's a blog, I think it's, it's, it's a forum for the Journal of the American Medical Association that said that the administration's rollbacks and proposed reversals of environmental rules could cost the lives of over 80,000 U.S. residents per decade and lead to respiratory problems for more than 1 million. That's talking about clean air changes. So I don't feel like it's, it's an over-exaggeration when we start talking about I mean, think about the number of people that have issues with asthma and just, you know, different things that that need that they need clean air. So when we no longer hold large corporations to a standard that it costs them money, right? To, in order to reduce emissions, it costs them their bottom line. And the current administration favors them having a, a bigger purse. So they're willing to say, you know what, you guys don't need to curb your emissions. Go ahead and make a lot of money. It's good for the economy. How good is it for the economy if you have to hold your breath while you're counting your money? I think you're getting at yet another very important issue. You know, I think it could be easy to, you know, demonize the current you know, administration just by saying, oh, they're wrong. You know, they they have nefarious purposes, but I think clearly what's really happening is that there's a different value system that has become dominant. And it's not a new value system. It's just a value system that has become more ascendant and is wielding power then over these decisions that have been put in place to protect the environment. How would you describe what's going on in terms of what you think is driving these rollbacks and and pushbacks and eliminations uh, of regulations? What's going on? I do think that it comes down to to how big your bank account is. I mean, we're seen on a global scale as this affluent country, right? Where everybody has the opportunity to become a millionaire. And kind of like I said at the very beginning, I think people that truly care about environmental conservation and working in the environment, we all want to live a, a decent life, right? We, there's, I need a certain amount of money I'm not doing the job I'm doing because I'm going to get rich at it. But when I look at, if you look at what motivates a lot of these environmental rollbacks that we're seeing, it is the, the intent is financial. It, we're going to, we're going to eliminate these strict emission standards for air emissions and water pollution, all these things that you've seen with the clean air act and the, and the clean water act. The changes that are happening are to the benefit of the large corporations so that they can produce more widgets for a cheaper price. On a, and so you're right. I mean, is that demonic? I mean, it's, it is a, it, what it is is a, a very different value system. And what I try to tell people is that we can do both. I think that we should always be striving to, to make corporations more effective and, and be able to produce more. But we have to find as a bottom line, we have to understand we live in this global community with finite resources. And so there's a cost to doing business. And how much are you willing to cut from your bank account to guarantee that we'll leave the world at least as good as it is today for tomorrow. 
maybe we can't make it better, but let's not make it significantly worse. And so I think that we could do a lot of this. We could revise policy. We could change the way we do business and large corporations could still make plenty of money, but we could do it in an environmentally responsible way. I think the real problem lies in the people, they're not maybe doing this intentionally, but like we talked about my background, I, ha I had a love for nature from a very early age because I was exposed to it and I saw the beauty and those are the things I remember from my childhood. I remember going to the Grand Canyon when I was three years old. I literally have memories of that. And when I go back to the Grand Canyon, when I first took my family there and I hadn't been in a long time, I was a little distraught with the amount of development that, that I saw there. And why, why do we do all that development? It's, you know, in one way it's trying to attract a different type of people, but it's also because there's money to be made. And if you haven't had that experience as a child, that connection to nature, by the time you become an adult, if you've just lived in the inner city and worked in a big office building, and now you find yourself in a policy position and you've been tasked by the president of the United States to head up a particular agency, why would you care about the natural side of it if you've never experienced it? And so it's not so much that these people are evil and they're doing it with spite. I'm afraid there are some that are, <laughs> but I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that we've, we're breeding a whole new generation of humans that have no connection to nature. And that is the scariest thing of all of this because our future leaders will never care about the environment if they've never experienced it. In this episode, we've created a platform for one man's urgent message about environmental injustice that all Earthkeepers need to hear. And this has everything to do with the broader mission of the Earthkeepers podcast. We are committed to bringing truth about the environment to light and intent on motivating people to become ecological change agents in response. In order to continue and expand the work of Earthkeepers, we are putting in place new systems of support. With the release of this episode, we have created an online portal that now allows listeners to make financial contributions. If you resonate with the diversity of ideas that you've heard through this podcast, we urge you to visit the Earthkeepers website at www.circlewood.online forward slash Earthkeepers. There you can quickly and easily make a tax deductible donation. As an added bonus, all of our contributors will get exclusive access to additional interview material that was not included in this episode. Whether you become a financial partner or not, we do want to express our sincere gratitude to all of you who listen to this podcast and for standing with us as we advocate for our planet. Thank you. You make me wonder to myself, if in fact what we're experiencing now in terms of the this sort of destructive period that we're in uh, isn't in fact a symptom of a much larger reality, right? I mean, it's not just a top-down oppression of the environment. It's a reflection perhaps of what's going on on a much 
wider scale that has to do with everybody. It has to do with our whole system of, of values and what we expect in terms of standard of living, what we demand in terms of what we deserve out of life. And in some ways, I think you have put your finger on it that that more and more generations are being disconnected from nature. I might add that it's also perhaps a matter of of the commodification of nature. In other words, we're conditioned by culture to to see the environment in what we can take from it, what we can get out of it, you know, and even nat- beautiful natural spaces like natural parks or the Grand Canyon, we value it for the entertainment value that it brings to us. And I'm wondering what is the antidote to that? What's what's a different way of being that that actually is going to become a better foundation really for for care of the environment? No, I think you're exactly right about the commodification. We so many people solely see the environment as a resource to provide something to us, right? And so, you know, we're definitely we've always exploited resources and and they seemed infinite. If you think back to, you know, what it must have been like to be a pioneer and you built your first log cabin, you cleared a little area of the forest and and you you cut down a few trees to make a cabin, but there were so many trees, you didn't think anything of it, right? I mean, but at some point, we we got to a point where we've dominated the environment. It's no longer a little cabin in the woods. The woods are, are the things that are little, and we've got major cities and development all across the globe. So somehow, again, I, I think it starts with reaching children at a young age and somehow giving them the connection, getting them to see the value of the environment, not for what it can do for you, not what it, not, not a material product, but what, cause what, what I just said is not what it can do for you, but it's exactly what it can do for you in a non-material way. There's nothing like walking out into a beautiful expanse. If you've gone camping and, and you get up early and you walk out in there, there's not another soul around and you watch the sun come up. There's a spiritual feeling that you get with that connection to, wow, I'm just a really small person in this vast expanse of nature. Most people don't ever get that in their life because they've not been exposed to it. I think that value, which doesn't, you can't put a dollar value on that. But that's the value that people need to start seeing so that they don't only see the value of building a massive hotel on that same site so that they can, you know, get money from the tourists that come. There's a balance. I understand we're always going to have access. We, we want to provide access to these areas. So we build roads, we build hotels, we, we do all this development. But that's where, again, I come back to, I, I think my job in a small way, on a smaller piece of land, is to focus and and try to point out those values in whatever we're doing in land management. How do we protect that non-monetary component? And then how do we educate the public? And that's the big question. The education, because as you said, we're there's just a whole new generation that are not being educated that way. They don't see 
anything in the environment except for dollar signs. It's, it's contextual as to your upbringing. So I, I was brought up, like I said, backpacking, traveling, all these neat areas. And, and so I have this great appreciation for beautiful areas. And so it's contextual, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. If you're trying to grow corn, if that's your primary focus in life, you know, tall, craggy mountain peaks don't do much for you. That's why we need to expose people to a grander scheme of the environment. You described a a particular moment, which clearly you have experienced, waking up early after camping and walking out alone to experience really the surroundings, the, the beauty and grandeur of the environment. And it makes me wonder, well, first I'll say that probably anyone listening to this podcast has had a similar experience, you know, if not countless experiences where where they encounter nature on that that level, as you call it, a spiritual level. Now, you don't come from any particular religious background or and don't hold to a particular framework of religious values, and yet you use that language. And it makes me wonder, is that sensibility or, or sensitization, that the ability to encounter nature in that way, is that something that's akin to this learning how to read? learning a language, does one have to learn how to do that, how to perceive nature at that level to get below the clamor, clamoring values of, of capitalism and, and pragmatism? Again, if, if, you have, if you're exposed to that experience as a young child, you absorb it as well as you absorb anything. And so it just becomes part of your vocabulary, right? I mean, to me growing up, Going on a backpacking trip down the Grand Canyon was no different than taking a trip to a museum or, or going to school. It was just part of the, it's part of what we did. So it was part of my overall experience. I think adults, what, and I say adult, meaning by the time you're you know 18 years old, it becomes much more difficult to break down those previous conceptions. So a lot of people won't go camping and won't have that experience because they're too worried about all the fears they have about just going out into the environment. And so that's a difficult one. You know, how do you teach someone? They always say it's harder to learn a language the older you get, right? And I think that holds true for this same thing we're talking about. It, it's much more difficult to get an adult with has already built all of these preconceived notions about the environment to get them to have that experience and truly understand it, it's going to be a, it's a challenge because they've, they've got too many internal walls that they've already built up around it to prevent them from enjoying it to the extent that they should. To return, I think, to this understanding that there's a lot going on that is setting us back. I am wondering a couple of things. First of all, why are people not aware of this as a crisis in terms of the way you describe it? Because when you talk about the severity of the changes being done, that to me reads crisis. That that to me leads me to a little bit of despair. And I'm not sure I know how to get my head around it. But my biggest question is, why don't people know about this? Any sense of that? I gave a lot of presentations to everything from school age you know, young kids to to college age kids, 
And one of the things I often mention to them, I'll, I'll be talking about some of these environmental issues and I'll say, when was the last time you saw something like this on the news? And there's dead silence. Every now and again, you get a news story. I think it was on the news today that they've just decided to look at reopening the Arctic refuge for oil drilling, right? I mean, we hear about that. That's been going on and off and on and off. And so people get, they hear about an environmental issue briefly, but mostly not at all. But when they do hear about it, it's highly politicized. So when you hear the news story today about opening up the Arctic refuge for drilling, it's presented in a political context. You're either for it because you support the current administration or you're against it because you're someone that just hates the current administration. There's, there's no in between. But nowhere in that news story does it talk about what might happen. What are the repercussions of drilling in the Arctic refuge and, and the long-term impacts and all, I mean, you know, there's, there's tons of studies out there that will elucidate those effects, but it doesn't make the news. And it's not, it's not part of, it's kind of what we were talking about. The, our culture today is focused on sensationalism and dollars and, you know, the environment doesn't cut it when when you get to that so i think a lot of people are unaware and and that's the scary thing because there's been a systemic and continual attack on the environment over the last three years so i i hear you saying that partly it's the media reflecting only certain aspects of an issue if they reflect it at all i think maybe more importantly i hear you saying that the media reflects or doesn't reflect what we have the capacity to listen to, right? I mean, there's probably a, a huge component of volition on part of society in the States in particular that we just don't have the patience or maybe even the value uh, to hear the stories and to hear the truths behind the stories. One story, though, I think most people are familiar with is the global story, the story of the United States uh, disconnection really from the larger mission or agenda, if you will, to to try to look at the world as a whole, as a whole system, and then concertedly work to improve conditions and, and protect the environment. And I'm wondering what you make of that. In particular, how does that fit into your prognosis of, of the changes that happening now will take a long time to recover from? Do you think that's the case with the U.S.'s pulling away from you know agreements with other countries, from projects. What's your take on that? We are a global community. Whether anybody wants to say differently, we are. Population is growing. We have connections. We can, like I was saying earlier, we can get just about anywhere in this world within a day, right? You hop on a plane and there you are. So we're a global community on a planet with finite resources. When we pulled out of the Paris Accord on climate change, we were one of, of, of all the developed nations that actually have serious emissions. I think we're in the company now of Iran and Turkey. I think those are the other two nations that, that aren't part of that agreement. For political reasons, we, we seem to pull out. We shouldn't care about politics. Political agendas play no role here. The crisis that we face, whether it's through the changes through climate change or any of these other things we've been talking about, 
you can't solve them alone, right? It's it's all going out. We're we're one planet, one human race, with finite resources. So if we're being smart, we're setting aside our differences, whether they're political, religious, racial, and saying let's work together for a a common solution. I think part of the problem with climate change is comes back to that issue of, well, what's going to happen tomorrow, right? It's all projections that are off into the future. And so it, it doesn't seem like this immediate threat. The huge fires that are burning in California right now that are threatening properties are an immediate threat. People get it. They're willing to throw money. They're willing to suddenly come together. People that wouldn't normally be coming together are coming together and fighting against this immediate threat. And for some reason, we have this sensationalized notion of crisis in this country that we wait until it's an absolute immediate threat before we're going to do anything about it, at which point it's often too late. Yeah, we had another guest on who spoke about that. Part of his life work was to care for a section of the Amazonian jungle. And he was pointing that out about his perception of the U.S., that we're very responsive to crisis and very willing to spend huge amounts of money to address crises caused by environmental changes in particular. His point was, if you only took a fraction of that money and invested it in preventative care, in helping us, for example, to to take care of our section of the Amazonian rainforest, you would be heading off those crises. And in the long run, if you're just going to use the economic model, you would be spending a fraction of what you would spend otherwise when the crisis or crises arrive that are caused by by climate change. You probably remember it's a trendy bumper sticker that says, think globally, act locally, right? It's kind of cliche. But at the same time, it's so true. Understand the global perspective, but then act where you can to make a difference. And so if everybody would take that initiative and realize nothing is too small, like I think a lot of people get overwhelmed by it, right? They're like, well, what can I really do? We've got all these things going on. So there's really nothing. All I could do is I'm just one person. I throw up my hands and I say, it's going to be what it's going to be. That's not true because the power has always been with the people. And all it takes is a tiny change. You know, if everybody would think locally, what could, what's one thing I can do locally to curb emissions? Maybe I'm going to, instead of driving to the grocery store three times a week, I'm going to get a little more efficient and make a list and only go once every two weeks, right? Imagine if everybody did that, how much emission could be reduced without causing any harm to the, to the economy or any of this. And so I always try to tell people it's easy to get overwhelmed by the, the massive number of, of issues and the, and the crises that are out there, but we actually have the ability to do it, to start to see positive change. And we don't even have to, like we were saying, you know, we can vilify the current administration all we want, but they're temporary. 
there will eventually be change. We can vilify an individual, we can vilify an administration. That's the easy way out. It's easy to complain. And I, I mean, there's plenty of things we can do to advocate for change and, and by all means go vote and do all those kind of things that are absolutely critically important. But what I think is more important is to take a deep look at ourselves and reflect a little and say, what's one thing I can do today to make a change? And that's powerful. We can do a lot. Earthkeepers podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves, our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When Earthkeepers stand together, they amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. We invite you to become a financial supporter of Earthkeepers. Please visit our website at www.circlewood.online forward slash Earthkeepers. And please share this podcast with anyone you know who seeks to become an agent of change and advocacy for the good of the earth. This podcast is an expression of Circlewood, an organization whose purpose it is to accelerate the transformation of humanity into life-giving inhabitants of creation. If you'd like to learn more about the Circlewood community, please visit our website at www.circlewood.online. I am Forrest Dinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Forrest Reed is our sound engineer and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast. Keepers podcast.